Uh-oh. I see low ABV drinks and historical knowledge in your future. Welcome to Buzzed History, the only segment in the nation where you can learn about our country while also enjoying an extremely responsible amount of alcohol. Buzzed History is a licensed segment of Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. Make sure to tune in to our regular episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. And don't forget to stay tuned after this segment for another insightful, measured, and civil Down the Middle interview. Now, here's your host, the slinger of stats, the messenger of moderation, the professor of punch, Justin Siegel. Justin Siegel. Hello, and welcome to this special Thanksgiving edition of Buzzed History. In the month of September of the year 1620, a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, carrying 102 passengers an assortment of both individuals lured by the promises of prosperity and land ownership in the new world, and religious separatists seeking a new home where they could freely practice their faith. After a dangerous 66-day journey, the ship dropped anchor near the tip of what we know today as Cape Cod, far north of their intended target, which was at the mouth of the Hudson. One month later, the Mayflower crossed Massachusetts Bay, where these pilgrims began the work of establishing a village at Plymouth. Throughout that first difficult and brutal winter, most colonists remained on the ship suffering from exposure, scurvy, and outbreaks of varied contagious diseases. Only half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived on to see their first New England spring. In March, the remaining population moved ashore, where they received an astonishing visit from an Abenaki Native American who actually greeted them in English. Several days later, that same Abenaki Native American returned with another. This man was named Squanto, and he was a member of the Pawtuxet tribe, who after being kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before escaping to London, returned home on an exploratory expedition. Squanto taught the pilgrims, who could not fend for themselves, how to cultivate corn, extract sap from maple trees, catch fish in the rivers, and avoid poisonous plants. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wampanoag, a local tribe which would endure for more than 50 years and very tragically remains one of the sole examples of actual harmony between the European colonists and Native Americans. In November of 1621, after the Pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast and invited a group, probably around 90 of the fledgling colony's Native American allies, including the Wampanoag chief, Massoit. That group, plus the 53 pilgrims, is what we remember as the first American Thanksgiving, even though it was doubtful that it was called that at the time. The festival lasted three days, and while we don't have any record of the exact menu, we know through writings that there was fowl, which could have consisted of, yes, wild turkey, but also ducks, geese, and swans, and at least five deer, and they were likely prepared using traditional Native American spices and cooking methods. As there was no oven, and by the fall of 1621, the sugar supply was dwindling, there were no pies, cakes, or other desserts. The pilgrims held their second Thanksgiving celebration in 1623 to mark the end of the long drought that had threatened the year's harvest and prompted Governor Bradford to call for days of religious fasting. Moving forward in time, during the American Revolution, the Continental Congress designated one or more days of Thanksgiving a year, and in 1789, George Washington issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation by the national government of the United States. 
In it, he called on Americans to express their gratitude for the joyful conclusion to the country's War of Independence and the successful ratification of the U.S. Constitution. It was celebrated on and off since that time, with Thomas Jefferson, for example, choosing not to observe the holiday at all. In 1817, New York became the first of several states to officially adopt an annual Thanksgiving holiday. Each celebrated it on a different day, and the American South refrained entirely from the tradition. In 1827, the magazine editor and writer Sarah Josepha Hale, author of Mary Had a Little Lamb, launched a campaign to establish Thanksgiving as a national holiday. For 36 years, she persisted, sending letters to government officials and publishing editorials. Due to this, she has earned the nickname, the mother of Thanksgiving. None other than President Abraham Lincoln himself finally took up Sarah Hale's charge, and at the height of the Civil War in a proclamation to all Americans, he asked them to ask God the following, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife and to, quote, heal the wounds of the nation. On June 28, 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant signed into law the Holidays Act that made Thanksgiving a yearly appointed federal holiday in Washington, D.C. On January 6, 1885, an act by Congress made Thanksgiving and other federal holidays a paid holiday for all federal workers throughout the United States. As for the date itself, President Lincoln had been the one to schedule Thanksgiving for the final Thursday in November, and it was celebrated on that day every year until 1939 when FDR moved the holiday up a week in an attempt to spur retail sales during the Great Depression. FDR's plan, known as Frank's Giving, was met with massive opposition, and in 1941, the president reluctantly signed a bill making Thanksgiving the fourth Thursday in November and no longer at the discretion of the president. Now, we wouldn't be down the middle if we didn't mention the issue that some Native Americans take with how the Thanksgiving story is presented to the American public. In their view, the traditional narrative paints a deceptively sunny portrait of relationship between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag people, hiding the long and bloody history of conflict between Native Americans and European settlers that resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands. Since 1970, protesters have gathered on the day designated as Thanksgiving at the top of Coles Hill, which overlooks Plymouth Rock to commemorate a national day of mourning. The real truth is that as what is essentially an annual celebration of the harvest and its many fruits, literally, Thanksgiving falls under a category of festivals that spans cultures, continents, and millennia. In ancient times, the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans feasted and paid tribute to their gods after the fall harvest. Thanksgiving also bears a resemblance to the ancient Jewish harvest festival of Sukkot. And of course, the Native Americans themselves had a rich tradition of commemorating the fall harvest with feasts and parties long before the Europeans. So from all of us at Down the Middle, we wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Whether you are celebrating on Zoom or with a much smaller number than you're usually with, we know that things aren't anywhere close to what we are all used to this Thanksgiving, and that this will most likely be the case for the Christmas holiday season as well. But we have hope and faith that next year, we will all be with our families celebrating in the way that we love, with our country back on track. In order to do this, we must be mindful of our neighbors. We must persevere. So stay safe, stay sane, and don't do anything crazy, America. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. You're listening to Down the Middle, a political podcast. Now, back to some intermittent, moderate change. 
May I? This guy. Have you been on the whole time? Have you heard all the great stuff? Do I get to do? Do I get to do your eulogy? I've said so many good things about you. I, I want to do the funeral. I did the wedding. I want to do the funeral. So, <laughs> all right. So, so let's get into our speed round here. Uh, we okay. love doing a speed round. We got five questions. We're going to go through them quickly, and we're going to get them done. And um, here we go. Your favorite thing about living in Texas? The weather. A <laughs> hundred degrees outside, yeah. and it's a hundred eight with the other. Look, I can't think. Of a, of a better place to live than Texas. This, the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, when you ask somebody where they're from, they're Texans, right? Now, I mean, nobody says I'm a Floridian, right? Nobody says, I'm a, you know, uh, but, but when you look at what... Because no one lived, no one grew up in Florida. That's, right. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, you think about it. I said we have a great, we have a great, we have Houston, Texas, as you probably know, is the single most diverse city in America. There are 135 different languages taught in the Houston Independent School District. I mean, and we don't have trouble, okay? It's a great place to live if you can handle August. And everybody goes to Colorado in August, right? But, sure. the, the, you know, it, it, it's just a very comfortable place to live. And the politics down here are pretty roughshod. But uh, in Texas, you know, when the lights go off, all these guys go across the street and do what's right for Texas. It, it's not, I mean, they, they literally will make a deal and they'll make a deal that's good for Texas. Despite the fact that we're Republican dominated, you don't have those kind of issues down here. And yeah. the, the, look, M M Megan Kelly, interviewed me one night, and it had to be a nice day in Texas, believe it or not. And we were sitting, I'm pointing downtown like you would know, but we're sitting on the roof of the George R. Brown Convention Center, which everybody's heard of this week because they canceled the state convention there right this weekend. And we're sitting outside, and she said to me some of the same thing, you know, what, what, what about Texas? And I said, well, look, it's a perfect day. It's 72 degrees here. It's, it's just like this every 365 days a year. Yeah. She said, well, that's a lie. And I said, look over your shoulder. Is anybody riding up and down the streets on horses shooting each other? You know, it, it's really, a, 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 you know, we got to the party late, but we had more money than anybody else. So all the arts are here. We've got the biggest medical center in the world. There, there is nothing wrong with living. Uh, in Houston, Texas. And I love it. Would I love to live anywhere else? I, I don't think so. I can get to either coast. Well, New York's not letting me in now, right? But I can get to either coast in two and a half hours, right? And I can have dinner and come home at night, not even get home late. So it's a comfortable place to live, except the day the hurricane hits. And, but you got that problem too. And August, we're dominated uh, by sports down here, right? It, it's just, I mean, what can I tell you? We've got all the culture in the world. It, it, it didn't get here in the 17th, 18th century, but we bought everybody else's 18th century and put it in the 20th century. And I, 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 I gotta tell you one, Justin, you'll appreciate this story. You know, Mark went to Alabama for a year. And so, he told me after his first year, he said, you know, I'm coming home. I said, well, why? 
And he said, it's just too rural here. And I said, wait a second, Mark. I said, you live in Houston for 18 years. How many times you go to the ballet? Zero. How many times you go to the symphony? Zero. How many times you've been to the art museum? Zero. And Tuscaloosa is too rural for you? I mean, give me a break. As big as we are, we're close to everything. You know, we go to a football game. Okay, so the game's in Austin. It's 150 miles. So we get in the car, two and a half hours, you see the football game and you come home, right? You want to go to College Station? Same deal. I mean, Texas is awfully big, but most of it's desert, right? So, Freddie, I thought everybody moved to Texas because it's the only state in the union that as a republic can succeed from the union if it so desires. <laughs> they might desire soon. We'll see. You know, unfortunately, that's not a true story. Everybody thinks it is. Texas has the right to divide itself into six separate states, but it can't secede. You know, there was a big secession movement until everybody read the Constitution and found out that we can turn into six states. Maybe, maybe, maybe we ought to turn Austin into a state and then let the rest of us have it. And then we wouldn't have to worry about the Democrats winning either. So, All right. Well, now that we have some context and we have my father in the room as well, uh, Fred, if you would, please explain what was known as the Ned and Fred show that aired during the Bush-Cheney campaigns. Okay. So here is the story. Ned and I were selected to chair the Jewish outreach for the campaign. Okay. And 04. And if you are on the campaign staff, you can't be involved in the RJC and any of that. So we had a board meeting, and Ned and I knew it was going to be our last board meeting ever. So we were in George Klein's in New York. And so we went out and got Blues Brothers masks, right? <laughs> and we come running into the boardroom. It's the Blues Brothers, and it's the Nettie and Freddie show. And, you know, half of these guys, remember, they knew who the hell we were. What is going on? But it was our farewell to the RJC. And you've heard us the give and take ever since. So that's what we did. We just had the best time ever. We decided that we had the fight of our life on our hands and that we were going to have to find a way to enjoy it. So the Nettie and Fred show, Nettie and Freddie show, was just badgering and working to get George W. Bush elected president of the United States. That's great. And obviously, you guys should take it on the road because you were very successful. You're right. Uh, you know, look, he won Florida by 350,000 votes. I still, uh, to this day, tell Carl Rove he should give Ned and me credit because, you know, we know what happened last time. Absolutely. Moving on, your favorite moment at a Washington Nationals game. And is it true that as an owner, you still have to pay for tickets? Well, so let me tell you, the story is, I'll do the second part first. Yes, we have to pay for 43,000 tickets. We just hope somebody buys a couple of them. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> That's the real answer. And the other thing is, as I tell my kids, it's too expensive. And they say, what do you mean? I said, I got to buy a plane ticket and a hotel room to get to the game. So my two favorite moments, number one, I happen to be in the stadium when Strasburg made his debut. And I don't know that you'd remember this, but he struck out the first six men he faced. They let him start against the Pittsburgh Pirates, who at best were a high school team. And he struck out the first, and that was pretty neat. But my second greatest moment, and it really wasn't anything the Nationals did yet, is when I saw 
the Astro manager in the seventh game of the World Series in the seventh inning jump out of the dugout to come and pull Zach Greinke out of the game. I looked at my kids and I said, we're going to win the World Series. They said, what do you mean? Greinke is pitching the greatest game he's ever pitched in Houston. He's got a one-hitter going, and this schmuck is going to pull him out of the game and bring in a relief pitcher who has pitched every game, right? So what does he do? He comes in, one pitch, bam, Howie Kendricks hits a home run, and we win the World Series. Amazing. You can't beat that. I mean, you know, what, what a moment. What a moment. That's great. Favorite ice cream flavor? My favorite ice cream flavor uh, in, in the summer gets a, gets a little to the mint, to the uh, peppermints. But uh, the, rest, the rest of the year, it's Baskin Robbins didn't pay me for this, but triple chocolate. <laughs> I'm a chocoholic. <laughs> and my puppet shows it. <laughs> so favorite international destination to visit? Jerusalem. I don't go anywhere else other than Israel. Uh, you know, I live vicariously through your father for any place else he goes. Uh, the only place I told you, I said early on that I'm not really a great traveler. Yeah. But I'd go to Israel weekly if I could. I mean, I love it so much when I'm there. And it empowers me to such an extent. Everything else I can see a postcard, you know, but mm -hmm. there I, I just get the feel of it, I, you know, and, and it just re inspires me. Hey, Freddie, can I ask you a question? I don't think I've ever asked you. Why do you think only 20% of American Jewry has been to Israel? What, why, what is the disconnect? Well, I didn't realize it was that small that have been to Israel. It's, it's only 20% that consider Israel a primary concern. And, and I can answer that one. But I don't think you're right with all the birthright and everything else in every temple and synagogue. And, and all the uh, uh, evangelicals, even the ones that are not practicing Jews anymore, they all go to Israel, they go for different reasons. So Ned, I'm not sure your number's right about that. The number I know is right. The number came from, it came from cement. Well, maybe that's 20% of the Hasidic go, because you know, you know that they're anti, virtually anti-Zionist. Why don't you ask one of them to sit up and sing Hatikva someday for them? So, <laughs> I mean, they really are. You ask them why they never mentioned. I don't know that. It, that's, that's, that's another issue. But w if you remember, Ned, AJC took uh, a national survey in 2004, and they had done one in 1995 as well. And they both showed the same thing. Israel came up number five in terms of priority. Only 20% of Jews considered Israel a priority. And it's something we talked about before you got on. Every Jew, and, and, and even Barack Obama couldn't prove him wrong as hard as he tried. Every Jew believes that if Israel's ever in trouble, the United States will support them. So therefore, they shouldn't consider that when they're deciding who to vote for for president of the United States. They have to focus on, on judges. They've got to focus on the social issues. So that's why they vote that way. And, I, you know, I was fervently hoping that the experience with Barack Obama would uh, maybe teach him a lesson, but it didn't. It didn't at all, because uh, even few of them think now. The only thing that Israel has really successfully marketed as a country is that they're the bull in the China shop, that they're the strongest, 
you know, everybody thinks they can defend themselves against anybody, so they don't need the United States for defense. So let's forget about it and let's go vote for everything else. I think I, I think that's that's the real issue. Fred, you don't think it's a disconnect now with the land, Eritrea, that Zionism has taken another form because of the controversies of the accusation of apartheid and what we're hearing in the news. Oh, that's true, Ned, but that's exactly what the internet and, and look, we all supported Israel because there was an existential, you know, we're the generation out of the Holocaust. We know, I mean, we don't really know we weren't there, but we know what it would be like if, the, if Israel wasn't there. We had no place to go, okay? But after the occupation of Lebanon, where for the first time ever, Israel became an occupying force, it destroyed in the liberal mind any of this higher sense of morality of us that were never an occupying force, because we unequivocally occupied the camps. No, it's a very valid point. They don't see it as a safe place. They, they see it as this is when the occupation started. They see right. it as a force that came in and took right. people out of a land instead of this is a safe place after the Holocaust and all of the, the, exactly. the things that came afterwards. This is a safe place where Jews can call home. They, they view it as the opposite. That's the danger. Yeah. And Fred, to, to your point about visiting Israel, I honestly do think if we, if every Jew that goes there is changed. I mean, I can speak from personal you know? experience. I'm sure both of you can as well. And if we had more Jews going there, I do not think we'd have so many of them voting uh, left. Right. That's true. Except they go there and what do they see? I mean, they, they don't, you know, it reminds me, Justin, when I took my father there in, mm -hmm. I guess it was 88. So we had, we took a flight and the flight got there, landed at about five o'clock on a Friday. So we knew we couldn't get to Jerusalem before the sun went down. So I said, all right, we're going to reverse. We're going to go to Tel Aviv first. Right. So we come into Tel Aviv. And uh, we get into the hotel, and the sun goes down. And you know what happens in Tel Aviv when the sun goes down? The music starts, everybody goes, oh, yeah. all the light goes on. And my father looked at me and said, I thought I was in Israel. I said, no, no, <laughs> Israel's Jerusalem. This is Miami Beach. That's right. right? That's exactly right. You know, Israel is not the country that it was back then either. Sure. I mean, you're now, what, are the, what do you hear about every day? You know, what did you hear? What was in the paper today? That they have more oil deposits than Saudi Arabia, which is true. They just can't ever drill them. You know, the entire Negev is on a shale deposit. So we, Israel literally has more oil than Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have the largest oil deposit in the world, right? But they, they won't let them drill it. But I mean, technology, right? Sure, absolutely. The, the the leader in the world. They don't brag about the things. And not only that, they pish on the Orthodox, mm -hmm. who are the ones that stayed by that wall and protected it. And they do it for good reason, because they don't want to work. And they abuse the coalition. And what else do they do? Women can't pray at the wall. Okay. You can't get married in Israel if you're a convert. Right. I mean, you got all these nutty laws. Even the Catholic Church realized they had to come into the 21st century or 22nd. I don't know what we're in. And that Siddham is not. No, and, and Israel is still locked in the two centuries ago.
-hmm. because Bibi Netanyahu's got to make a deal with the ultra-Orthodox parties. That's right. So, and it's, it is very much Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. They're almost two different countries. It's that's really, right. when you that's go there right. and experience it, it's something to see. You got it. So that's it. So Israel doesn't portray itself anymore. And, mm -hmm. and it's funny because then they show you the map, right? Yeah. I mean, Israel is the size of the little fingernail compared to their region. 600 million people want to destroy them. How are they the bullet? You know, and the Arab countries, look, the Arab countries all realize, you know, they all use the Palestinians as their excuse uh, to not take care of their own population. Now they're also worried about Iran. They Look, when, when, when they move that embassy, I mean, we all know these stories. Saudi Arabia said to them, screw you guys. We ain't got to give you a nickel. You want to go riot? You want to start a war? Go start it. Where are you going to get the equipment and the money? It ain't coming from us. You better sit tight because we got to worry about Iran, not the Israelis. And that's what changed this whole dynamic. All right. So that wraps up our interview. Fred, please tell us where we can find you on the Internet. Can we find you on the Internet? Do you have social media? No, <laughs> no face. I couldn't even cut on the computer, Justin. How the hell can I be on the social media? <laughs> Fair. You know. I, look, I don't want to go on Facebook and find out all the parties I wasn't invited to. So I just as soon live in my own little bubble. I apologize. I'm you're not. Be, you're, you know, you're better off for not seeing what's going on firm, there. Trust my me. firm made me go on LinkedIn. I hate it. I call them every day and I can't stand that. My assistant says to me, you got 96 people waiting to hear back from you. I said, I don't even know how to cut LinkedIn in. The hell with them. You know, I'm sorry. They're very personal messages, but I don't know. I, I, get, I get no no shot at it. So, well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for marrying my wife and I. A lot of people don't know that story who are listening. My thrill, Nettie. I told them I wanted to wear a collar, but you told me we weren't going to be seen. We we're only going to be heard, so I didn't wear it tonight. That truly was one of the thrills of my life, and what a great story that was. Do you know the second? You know the story where I walked outside the church. Afterward, and I called my rabbi in Houston, I mean, right outside the door. And I said, Rabbi, I'm in deep. And he said, What do you mean? I said, I got to conduct a mass tomorrow morning. I just <laughs> agreed to do it. What am I going to do? Because, you know, the pastor said to me, I hear you're going to, I hear you're going to co officiate with me. Sure. So the rabbi said to me, Well, I didn't call my, I called the rabbi that I know did the most interfaith services. He said, Not a problem. He said, I'm going to scan to you now the last three that I've done. And he scanned them. And by the time we got back to the inn, the hotel, they were all there. And the what, is he a pastor or a reverend? I don't know what. The pastor. Pastor. Mm -hmm. Pastor and I sat down outside and put together the service. So Amazing. Incredible. I, I did not know that story. That's awesome. I'm going to tell Tiff. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Brad. We really appreciate it. This is right. Nettie, This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. 